I'm John Best. I'm the Global Ministries Pastor here at Willingdon Church. And I've got a dream that every one of us in this church family would be able to engage in global mission in some way. That every one of us would be able to reach into the world with the gospel in some other part of the world. Now, not every one of us is called to be a long-term missionary in some other part of the world. I don't even think all of us are called to do a short-term mission in, in another part of the world. Some of us are. So if I want every one of us to be engaged in God's mission in some other part of the world, but I've said those things aren't for all of us, how does that work? And so it's with this question in mind that Willingdon is forming a strategic partnership with Compassion Canada. This weekend is Compassion Weekend. You may have noticed as you walked in that there's a focus on the Ministry of Compassion Canada. And the Ministry of Compassion Canada is one that is very strong, very strategic in terms of mission, and quite accessible for a broad cross-spectrum of our church family. The invitation is this to consider sponsoring a child through Compassion Canada, $41 a month. We'll hear more about that as these next minutes go on. So we're committed to a long-term partnership with Compassion Canada. This weekend is not a one-off event. It's not the only time we're going to celebrate the Ministry of Compassion and invite you to participate. This is the kickoff weekend of what will be a partnership for many years to come. And so we had a great banquet on Friday night. We also have the Compassion Mobile Experience parked up in our parking lot. You may have seen that. Some of you may have participated in that already. If you haven't yet seen the Mobile Experience, please make an effort to go see it. It's well worth your time. Uh, yesterday, we put 1,100 people through this thing. So there is a, there's high volume, and it's quite an exciting thing. 3,500 people will visit it over the course of the weekend. So if you haven't yet done it, please grab your chance to do that. My hope is that over these years, these next years, hundreds and hundreds of children will be sponsored through the Ministry of Compassion from our Willingdon Church family. But let me tell you why we think compassion is worth investing in. Why Compassion Canada specifically is a ministry that we're partnering with and encouraging you to consider. Three C's. The first is this. Compassion is Christ-centered. Jesus is proclaimed very clearly. Children's physical, educational, social needs are met, and they meet Jesus. Each year, thousands of compassion children receive Jesus and make him Lord of their lives. So that's the best transformation possible. The second is this. They're child-focused. Child-focused. They're making a measurable difference in the lives of the children that they serve. Research has shown that compassion-sponsored children, as compared to their non-sponsored peers, are more likely to finish school and more likely, more likely to become leaders in their churches and in their communities. And so these programs are having a very tangible difference in the lives of children. And the third important thing that we really like is that the Ministry of Compassion is church-based. It is based in the local church. Every single compassion center around the world is based in a local church. And so the children who are sponsored are being served by people who love Jesus, and the church is having a tangible impact in their community. So we like these things. It's Christ-centered, it's child-focused, and it's church-based. So to help kick off this partnership well, we've got a guest speaker today. Sean Groves is his name. Sean, come on up. Sean comes from Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, has a wife named Becky, four children. 
Travels extensively as a musician and as a speaker, loves Jesus deeply, and loves to serve compassion as a volunteer, just advocating for this great ministry. Welcome here. We're so glad you're here. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for Sean, and I pray that you would speak through him to us in these next moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, I, I, I arrived here tired last night, and I woke up tired this morning, but this music this morning, it just filled me right back up. Like, I'm pretty amped up after that incredible music, aren't you? So I might preach an hour and a half. I'm sorry, but you're going to miss all the good seats at the restaurant. You're not laughing really that hard at that. No, but really great. I don't know if you realize how blessed you are to have these musicians, so if you see them, would you please thank them? Because I'm in lots and lots of churches every year, been doing this for 16 years, and I've never heard such incredible music at a church. So you are so, so blessed to have them. And I'm blessed to be able to experience that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open those. I'm going to give you three passages that we're going to connect together this morning. So if you're one of those planner types, I'm going to tell you all three up front, and you can go ahead and stick a bookmark in each of those places. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 16, and then we're going to move on to Galatians chapter 2. And lastly, we'll end our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So we're going to begin in Exodus 16, then Galatians 2, then 2 Corinthians 8. Exodus 16, Galatians 2, 2 Corinthians 8. And if you're a note taker, you're going to love me because I'm going to tell you all three points right here at the beginning. So actually, you could just leave. I'll just tell you the three points, right? So here are the three points. The first is that God has a mission. God has given us a command and God has a method. We're going to look at God's mission, God's command, and God's method. So let's begin with God's mission in Exodus chapter 16. Here's the story. God's children are making the long road trip from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And on that long journey together, his kids get a little hungry and a lot whiny. And so God pulls over the minivan and he has a talk with his children through the babysitter Moses. And he says these words to his kids in Exodus 16, verse 4, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And each day you are to go out and gather enough for that day. This is a test to see if you'll follow my instruction. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And God, being the good father that he is, he kept his promise. The next morning when his children woke up, they looked out on their front yards and they saw to their amazement millions of pieces of delicious, sweet, flaky bread. They touched it to their lips and it was so good, better than anything they'd ever tasted before. And so they named it manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? In the evening, God fed his children quail. In the morning, he fed them manna, or what people would say from my neck of the woods, we would call that biscuits and chicken. Obviously, God is Southern, right? Obviously. You're not going with me on that one either. Okay, well, can we at least agree on this, that God is good? Amen? And he shares his goodness with us. But the problem with receiving God's goodness is that it often brings out the worst in us. And so as God served breakfast and he served dinner to his kids, he also served a law, not just any law. The very first law that he gave his children after they left slavery in Egypt, the very first law on their journey to the promised land. Why is that significant? Well, God has a plan for his people. Right now in the book of Exodus 16, they are spoiled, selfish, whiny brats. But for the next 40 years, God is going to lovingly, gently, patiently, 
parent them, disciple them, and slowly they're going to be transformed so that when they arrive 40 years later in the promised land in Cana, they're going to be a different kind of people. They're going to be a kind of society that operates in such a way as to reveal to those around them what God is like. You see, God has picked out a new neighborhood for his kids. He has picked out a cul-de-sac for them where they will be surrounded by neighbors who don't know what God is like. And when these neighbors one day look at God's people, they will see them and they will say, wow, God is good and God can be trusted. God's mission is to reveal himself to the nations as a God who is good and trustworthy. God's mission is to reveal himself to the nations as a God who is good and trustworthy. But they are not the kind of people who can reveal that about God yet. Back in Exodus 16, where we are, they're not there yet. And so God begins to give them the first of many laws that will turn them into that kind of people who show the nations what he's like. And the very first law he gives them is about breakfast. He says, you're to go out and gather enough for that day. This is a test to see if you'll obey my instruction. You want to be a nation that shows the nations that God is good and trustworthy, start here with the first law. Take your daily bread and then pass the biscuits. If you want to be a church that shows your community that God is good and trustworthy, then take your daily bread and then share the rest. Do you want to be a family that shows your neighborhood that God is good and can be trusted? Then take your daily bread and then pass the biscuits so that others can taste and see that God is good and God can be trusted. Start here. God's mission is to reveal himself to the nations. Now, God told his people exactly how much daily bread was. He told them to collect one omer for every person who lives in their house. One omer is about two and a fraction liters. So you get one omer of food for every person in your house every day. And so they went out and they collected one omer for everyone in their house. And when they did that, when they obeyed the first law, everyone had enough. Everyone got to taste and see that God was good. But then one day, someone took more than their daily bread. We don't know why they did it. The Bible doesn't say. But because people in Exodus 16 are a lot like us, we can make a pretty good guess about why that happened. I'm imagining maybe someone showed up. They were one of those early risers, those type A personalities that live by the to-do list. You know those. I'm married to one of those, right? And they bounded out of bed. They were singing in the shower. They were the first ones there. And they were the hardest working and the fastest at collecting their daily bread. And when they got done, perhaps they felt a bit of pride about what they'd accomplished. And they thought, you know what? I've worked so hard. I deserve more. Or maybe... Maybe it wasn't like that at all. Maybe it was someone who just collected their daily bread and they looked up and they saw as far as the eye could see millions and millions of pieces of delicious what is it? And maybe they thought, no one's going to miss it if I take a little more. 
We don't know why they did it, but we know that they did. They took some extra, some leftovers, and they put it in the pockets of their toga, and they went back into their tent, and they stored it away in their retirement, I'm sorry, their uh, refrigerator in case God ever stopped being good, in case God ever stopped being a God they could trust. And it says that God became angry and that God turned their leftovers into maggots and it began to stink and it no longer satisfied. That's my story. Is that yours? Spending most of my life filling up my resume with accomplishments, my wall with degrees, filling up my shopping cart with things, filling up my plate with seconds and thirds, filling up my house with stuff, filling up my attic with the stuff that can't be contained in my house, filling up my car, my driveway with cars, filling up my calendar with more appointments and more busyness. And I fill and I fill and I fill and I fill and I'm not full. Because God has created me to be satisfied only by his mission, only by living a life that says, God, I trust you and you alone are good and only you can satisfy. That is the only life that will satisfy us. More stuff will never give us more satisfaction. It will never. Trust me, I've tried. So with their pantries full of maggots and stink, God's people are on their knees and begged him for forgiveness. And God, being a good father, gave them a second chance. And it says that from that time on, they obeyed the first law. They took only their daily bread. And it ends so beautifully. Exodus 16 says that those who gathered much because they had much family did not have too much. And those who gathered little because they had little family did not have too little. But when they took only their daily bread, everyone had enough. Everyone got to taste and see that God really is good and God really can be trusted. God's mission is to make himself known to the nations as a good and trustworthy God, to glorify himself. That's his mission. Now, God's command. Let's go to Galatians 2. In Galatians chapter 2, the story here is of a man named Paul. And Paul is being sent out as the very first missionary to Gentiles, to non-Jews like you and me. This is an important critical moment in the history of Christianity for the very first time people outside the Jewish race are going to hear about a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for us, to die on the cross that was meant for me, to lay in the tomb that should have been mine and to be raised to life again, to raise us to life and to be with him forever. And this good news he's going to preach for the first time ever to the Gentiles. It's such an important moment that before he sets out on his mission, he goes to the church in Jerusalem to be prayed for. And so the whole church is there. And the pillars of the church, Galatians 2 tells us, that's James, Peter, and John. They lay their hands on Paul and they pray him out into the world. But as he is leaving them, they give him one piece of instruction, one final command. Now imagine that's you. 
Just put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. Imagine that's you and you're standing here before your church and you're about to be sent out to preach the good news of the gospel to people who have never heard it before. Oh, such an honor, such an important task. And as they're sending you out, they pray for you and then they give you one final piece of instruction. It is so important that they make it their very last words they say to you as you head out the door. What would your pastor say to you? What would be the most important thing they would tell you? In Galatians 2 verse 10, we read those last instructions they gave to Paul. He said, all that they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. And this is something I am eager to do, Paul says. That word eager means a fervent desire that cannot be stopped. Do you have a fervent desire to remember the poor? Where does that passion for the poor even come from? Where does it come from? How can we get it? We can look at the congregation there in Jerusalem for a bit of a clue. You see, the Christians that were gathered there in Jerusalem to pray for Paul, they they were friends of his. He'd worshiped with them for two or three years. He'd sung songs right alongside them. He knew their names. He knew their faces. He knew their stories. They were connected. And scholars now believe that 80% of those Christians in that church were living in abject poverty. Poverty is, economic poverty is defined very differently in the Bible than it's defined by economists and politicians today. In the Bible, uh, Physical poverty is not having daily bread. If you have daily bread, you're doing okay. And if you have bread for today and for tomorrow, you are rich. So 80% of the Christians who Paul had worshiped with those last two or three years, 80% of the room that prayed for him that day that he was sent out, they were starving. He would have looked out at them seen people he recognized. We'd have seen stoic toddlers, their stomachs growling. We'd have seen listless infants suckling at a breast depleted by malnutrition. He would have seen fathers with tears still wet on their cheeks from burying little ones too soon. And these weren't some problem in some far off land for him to solve. They were people he loved. They weren't just numbers and statistics that people spout when they talk about poverty. They weren't just numbers. They were neighbors that he knew. The tragedy of our modern cities is that they're built in such a way that you and I can live in the same neighborhood our whole lives and never once come in contact with someone who's poor. And so they are just some far off problem. They're just some number. They're not people. They're not neighbors. God's command to us is to eagerly remember the poor. And to do that, we must intentionally go outside of our normal places we inhabit and make an effort to actually 
know these people, to know their names and their faces, to hear their stories, to connect with real people. Because it's only in relationship with the poor that we become eager to love them and remember them. God's mission is to make himself known to the world as good and trustworthy. God's command is that we do that in part by eagerly remembering the poor, by relating to them, getting involved. And the third point this morning is God's method. God's method. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Here's what happens between Galatians and 2 Corinthians. Paul, after he's prayed and sent out to preach the gospel and remember the poor, he does just that. He preaches the good news of Christ crucified and risen. And tens of thousands of people come to faith in Christ all across the empire. And they gather together in churches and places like Antioch and Ephesus and Galatia and Philippi and Corinth. And as these Christians all over the empire reach a state of maturity, the Apostle Paul will inevitably write them a letter. You've read these letters throughout the New Testament. And you may have noticed that he often talks about an offering. He asks these Christians to give of their leftovers, to pass a bit of their manna back to the church in Jerusalem so that through the church in Jerusalem, the needs of the community can be met. He's asking them to create some leftovers in these letters. He writes, he asks them, you know, perhaps you would need to sell some lands or sell a home or sell some cattle, but you might need to do something radical like go from a smartphone to a dumb phone or cancel your cable or cut back on your Tim Hortons habit. But he's asked them, hey, mature believers, your family in Jerusalem is dying. Will you please create some leftovers for them? And then Paul visits them in person and he passes the offering plate and they give a bit of their leftovers and it's taken back to the church in Jerusalem so that through the church, the needs of the people can be met. God's mission is to show himself good and trustworthy to the world. God's command to us is to remember the poor and God's method for doing both of these things is us. God's method is the church his body on earth. You are God's plan A and there is no plan B. We are his method. And so now we come to this letter that he wrote to to the church in Corinth about this offering, about giving to the church in Jerusalem and through the church, glorifying himself and caring for the poor. So we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. Here's what he says about our giving. As we, the church, become God's method and we share, what does he want us to know about that? And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 13, he says this. Our desire... in in asking you to share, is not that you would be hard-pressed so that others might be relieved, but that there might be equality. Our desire isn't that you would be hard-pressed. That word hard-pressed comes from the Greek word thalipsis. And thalipsis is usually translated into your New Testament as the word tribulation. It's a serious word. 
It's the idea of someone being trapped under an enormous boulder that is so much greater than them that it threatens to crush them and squeeze the very life out of them. And he says, when you give, it should not be as a tribulation. Theologians believe that God is teaching us two things about giving from this verse. The first is that he's teaching us about the attitude of giving. Whenever we get the opportunity to give, it shouldn't be a burden. It should be a blessing. It shouldn't be something we have to do. It should be something we get to do. Just a few verses later, Paul says those famous words, God loves a cheerful giver, a cheerful giver. And so our attitude shouldn't be as if we're being persecuted when we're asked to give. It should be that we're being given a great gift that we get to give. I mean, can you, can you wrap your mind around this, that the God of the universe, all powerful, he could, he could choose any way he wants to reveal himself to the world and to care for the poor, but he chose you. He chose you that God would take your hand and lead you out into the world to be his ambassador, his proof of goodness and trustworthiness. What a joy that is. And you can't tell it by the look on anyone's face here, but it is a joy that we would be trusted with such a task as that. Oh, what a gift. So he tells us, It shouldn't be a tribulation. That's about attitude. But also, he's not just telling us about our attitude in giving. He's telling us about the amount that we can give. The amount of giving. Now, track with me here. I love Canada. I love Canadian Christians. I get to come up here to your fair land at least once a month. And you are the kindest, sweetest people I have ever met. You are so incredibly nice. You apologize for things you didn't even do. I'm constantly being told, you're sorry. I don't understand what that's about. You're so nice. And so I know that you don't have this problem here. But in America, we're not as nice as you. And the average American Christian who attends church regularly, that means just once a month, the average regular church attender in America Well, 80% of them don't give anything to their church. They don't give any time. They don't give any money. So in our churches, about 20% of the church is actually being the church. And then those that do give, we know that only two, they only give 2.14% of disposable income away. Not just to church, but to anybody. That means that the average regular church attender in America doesn't give at all. And those that do give, they buy their shelter and their transportation and their food and their health care, and they take care of themselves first. And then out of what's left over disposable income, they give only 2.14% of it away to anybody. I'm sure you don't have that problem here, though, because Canadians are very kind. So in America, whenever we do preach about giving, which is something you almost never talk about, because if you really want to make somebody angry, ask them to give. 
But when we do preach about it, we're trying to set a minimum. In other words, we're trying to say to a room full of people like this, who when they converted to Christianity, they said, all to Jesus I surrender. We're trying to get them to just surrender a dollar. And then those who are giving something, we're trying to get them to give just a little something more. We're trying to get people in America to just give a minimum. And Paul is doing the opposite. Paul has a different problem. He is setting a maximum. The maximum amount you can give. Give until giving a dollar more is a tribulation to your family. You see, he's talking to people who look out across their lives and they see how littered with manna it is. They see that God loved them so much that he spared no expense to rescue them from sin and shame and death and purposelessness. He gave his own son for them. And then what's even more, he put clothes on their back and shoes on their feet and clean water in their faucet. He gave them books to read and eyes to see and tongues to praise with and ears to hear and beautiful faces around their kitchen table and friends and fellowship in their church. He's given them so much that they are eager to remember the poor. They can't wait to share God's goodness with others. And so Paul has to say, please don't give too much. Give with an attitude of joy, but don't let your joy carry you away. Make sure that your children have food. Make sure that your wife has a roof over her head, but you can give all the way up to that line. Wouldn't you love to go to a church like that? I look on some of your faces, you look terrified of this becoming a church like that. (laughs) And so Paul says, we're the method, but as we give, give it the right attitude and be careful to give the right amount. And then verse 14, he tells us to give humbly. In verse 14, he says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. And someday, perhaps, they'll have the plenty that you need. You see, there is no such thing as a self-made man, a self-made woman. Everything that we have is a gift from God. I didn't ask to be born where I was born, to the family I was born to. I didn't ask for the mind that I have, the body that I have. I didn't ask for, I was set up really well by God. So were you. And so at the moment, God has blessed me by giving me more than I need, a surplus so that I can, I get to give to those who don't have enough. But because, but because I don't write history and I don't, I don't know where my life is going, perhaps someday I'll be the one in need. And God says, he'll make sure there's someone else who has more who gets to give to me. Isn't that humbling? When we give, it's with humility, realizing that everything we have to give is itself a gift from God. That we arrived at the place that we're at only by his grace. And so we give, we give joyfully, we give the right amount, and we give humbly. And then lastly, lastly, let's look at verse 15. He reiterates, the goal is equality. The goal of our giving is equality. But what does that even mean? The goal is equality as it is written, and he quotes Exodus 16. The one who gathered much because he had much family didn't have too much. And those who gathered little because they had little family didn't have too little. But everyone had enough. 
Everyone got to taste and see that God is good and trust him. And that is the goal. God's mission is to prove himself to the nations as good and trustworthy. God's command is that we would go about that by remembering the poor. And God's method for doing both those things is us, the church. It is through the local church that we glorify God and that we remember the poor. And when we do that, we do it with the right attitude. We're careful not to get carried away and do it too much. And we do it with humility. And in the end, when we do this well, equality comes. And all people have what they need. I was in Nairobi, Kenya, in the Mathari slum, second largest slum in all of Africa. 80,000 people crammed into two square miles of rusting corrugated metal. My friend and I, we sloshed our way through the serpentine paths until we finally made it to Elliot's house. Elliot was 18 years old, dapper Kenyan young man wearing his school uniform, met us outside of a house smaller than the average North American bathroom, six by eight, 48 square feet. He had a smile on his face, though, because even though his house is small, his God is very big. We sat on his bed and he told us a story about when he was five years old, his mother passed away, leaving his father to care for him all by himself. His dad works as a day laborer. It's the most common job on the planet. Roughly two billion people work as day laborers, going out every day, taking any job they can for any wage that's offered. Working his absolute hardest, his dad couldn't earn just $2 a day. That's just not enough money to buy daily bread. And so his dad starved himself. He went without meal day after day just so his boy could have something on his plate, a little rice, a little beans. Elliot remembers, though, when he was small, um, this incredible day, the special occasion where his dad surprised him. He came home from work with a great gift a piece of meat they got to share. First time he'd ever had meat. You know, a little one who doesn't get proper nutrition, their immune system wears out, it wears thin. Elliot was always sick and there was no money to see a doctor. So he would just hope and wait. Now, if you're born into what we call poverty here in North America, you at least have the hope of public school. And I can't convince my four kids that school is a gift from God, but it really is, I promise you. It's a gift that most of the world does not get for free. And so Elliot could go to school, but he'd have to buy the books and the backpack and the uniform and the shoes and the meals. And on top of that, there are fees to pay. And how can a father who can't afford to put bread on a plate afford to put books in a bag? It was a hopeless situation. How would he ever break free from poverty? But then a knock came at the door. And standing at the door that day was a pastor from a church right there inside the slum. And Elliot said that this pastor, he talked like a madman. He made promises that were just too unbelievable. He promised Elliot that he would not go to bed hungry anymore. He would always have enough to eat. He promised him if he ever got sick, that there would be doctors and dentists and nurses and counselors to put him back together again. He told him he could go to school. He could learn to read and write and add and subtract and and the books and the fees and it would all be taken care of. And he told him that, you know, if he was very bright and if he worked very hard, he could even go on to university. 
But if he wasn't that bright, if he wasn't that hardworking, you know, maybe he's a musician. He said, it's okay. <laughs> because while you're working on that high school diploma, we're going to teach you a job. You're going to learn how to work computers or to fix them or to build stuff with your hands. But when you graduate from school, you're going to graduate into work that will allow you to give your children a better life than the one you've had. Poverty ends with you, he promised. But that wasn't even the most incredible promise he spoke. The most unbelievable words is when he looked Elliot in the eyes and he said, God sees you. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. And that was the day everything changed. That was the day that Elliot became one of Compassion's children. Compassion invented child sponsorship in 1952. And to this day, they're still the highest rated child sponsorship organization in the world. In fact, among all charities of all kinds worldwide, Compassion International, because of their integrity and their effectiveness, are ranked in the top 1% of all charities worldwide. What Compassion does is very biblical. We've already seen it in 2 Corinthians 8. They work through the local church. They believe that the most powerful force on earth is not a government, it's not a corporation, but the most powerful thing on earth is the body of Jesus Christ, the local church. And so always, only exclusively through the church around the world, in 26 of the world's poorest countries, Compassion meets the physical and spiritual needs of little ones born into families that earn less than $2 a day. And every child they care for receives five things, education, health care, proper nutrition, clean water to drink, and most importantly, a Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because compassion works through the body of Christ, preaching the good news of Christ, demonstrating the love of Christ, on average, 500 children every single day come to faith in Christ through the ministry of compassion. 500 children every day. But every child needs a sponsor. There's no way that these churches around the world that Compassion serves children through, there's no way that they could care for hundreds of children all on their own. There's just no way they can do it unless we stand with them. Unless we, the Christians who have more manna than we need, simply pass it to them so that through the church we can care for these kids. A sponsor is someone who gives $41 a month to underwrite the care that one child receives through a church in their neighborhood. I asked Elliot his sponsor's name. He said, my sponsor's name, Nick Erskine, Northern California. I didn't have the heart to tell him Northern California is not part of the dude's name. I just played along. I said, well, does Nick Erskine, Northern California ever write you letters? Because, you know, the best sponsors don't just give their money. They give themselves and he pulled out this stack of letters, an inch thick stack of letters from Nick Erskine, Northern California, that started arriving at Elliot's house when he was seven, and they were still showing up when he was 18. Because there are some days when Elliot is sitting in algebra, and he has no idea what the value of X is. Can I get a witness from anybody here? Yeah, anybody. Don't you wish you had a sponsor in high school? It's on those days when poverty seizes the moment and begins to tell Elliot, you're dumb you're worthless, you're nobody, you're nothing, and you're never going to get out of here. And Elliot hurries home when that bell rings, and he reads the letters of Nick Erskine, Northern California, and they give him strength to keep going. I'm praying for you today and every day 
I love you so much. I'm so proud of the man that you're becoming. Don't quit. I believe God has a big plan for your life. I wanted so badly for Nick Erskine, Northern California, to be with me that day in Elliot's house. I wanted him to see with his own eyes that the $41 he gives to compassion, it goes where they say it's going to go. It does what they say it's going to do. I wanted him to see that the words he wrote down, they made it not just across the oceans and the continents, but into the heart of this young man and have changed him. I wanted to bring these two together, but I couldn't afford a plane ticket to bring Nick to Elliot. So I brought Elliot to Nick. Watch this. You may talk directly to him. No, I'm talking to you and Nick. You may, you may talk directly to Nick. Okay. Dear Nick, how are you? I hope you are fine. It's fine. Let me to hug you. And I can imagine how good you are to me. I love you very much, and you mean a whole thing to me. You are like my dad, you are like my mom. Give me hope and strength to be who I am. Thank you for all the things you've been doing for me, and for the ones you continue doing. I pray to God to bless you, to give you hope, to encourage you, now we know God's mission, his command, and his method, and how all of that comes together in the ministry of compassion. I'd like to ask you to do just two things before your head hits the pillow tonight. Would you pray and ask God first to show you all he's given you, all the time, the talent, the energy, and the resources he's given you? Would you just ask him to show that to you and thank him for it? Second thing I'd like to ask you to do is to pray and ask God where he would like you to pass those resources. Where could you give those? And I'd like to ask you to begin right here in this church. If you call this church your family, then give here first. Give your time, your talent, your energy, and your finances right here. I know that they are desperately needed. And secondly, I'd ask you to consider ways that you could give to your community, to this very community where God has placed you to live. You're here for a reason. And then thirdly, if you give to your church and you give to your community and you are so blessed that you still have more manna left over to give, then I would ask you to give to a compassion child to go out to the compassion sponsorship tables in the lobby and to grab one of these compassion sponsorship packets. And on it, you'll see the name, the face, the birthday, and the story of a real child. And you will become eager to serve them as you invest in a relationship with them and you get to know each other. Write them letters and let them write you back. All of my four kids, my kids are 15, 14, 11, 9. Every one of my kids sponsors a child. I'm always looking for ways as a dad to make my kids more like my wife, I'm more like Jesus. And so I found that sponsoring a kid for them is a great way because through those letters, I see my own children change. They no longer say they're starving when they're just hungry. They don't stand in front of a full uh, closet and say, dad, I've got nothing to wear. They know better now. So for every child in your life who could use the gift of perspective, sponsor a child for them. If you're a grandparent and you are just stunned at the mess your children have made of your grandchildren, you can fix that today. 
You can sponsor a child for every one of those kids. And this is a great way that you as a family can live out the message we've heard today. So please do that. There's only one packet for every child, so please don't leave with it. Fill it out and take the extra time to turn it in before you leave this building today. God bless you guys, and thank you for your generosity. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sean. Wonderful word. So that, the invitation is in front of us to consider sponsoring a, a child through compassion. What an awesome way to engage in global mission for many of us. Uh, my family has decided to sponsor a little girl named Anna Beatrice. She's eight years old from Brazil, and we're excited to start building a relationship with her. There are 26 countries around the world that compassion does work in. You can choose to sponsor a child from any of those. But I would like to tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, that we've got a special opportunity in Brazil specifically. You may remember that we've got a missionary named Jerry Haranka in northeastern Brazil. And so we've already invested significantly into that region of the world. We send short-term teams there consistently a couple times a year. In fact, we have a team there today. And uh, what Compassion has done is they've found a number of churches in the city of Fortaleza, which is, is a similar region to where Jerry is. And this, this cluster of churches has a whole bunch of kids that, have, that need sponsorship. We have those kid packs here today. And my dream is that many, many people here this weekend would sponsor a child from Brazil. And then we as a church will be able to build a real relationship with this cluster of compassion centers in Brazil. And we'll, our intent is to send short-term teams to go and serve them. So if you want to have an opportunity to actually get to know your child that you're sponsoring and maybe even visit, this would be one good way to, uh, to engage in that. So consider it. And uh, it's one way that you could really engage in God's mission in a wonderful way. Let me close with this doxology from the book of Jude. Let's pray together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thank you for coming.